welcome to this episode of the Sex Plus Health Podcast. I'm Fred Wyant with the American Sexual Health Association, ASHA. This is actually the first installment of a two-part podcast over the course of which we'll talk about everything from disappearing pubic hair to antibiotic-resistant gonorrhea. From the sex detectives knocking on our doors to clever marketing campaigns designed to lighten our wallets while we use products designed to make our nether regions daisy fresh. That's a lot to cover, but don't worry. We have a guidebook on our journey. It's just published and it's called Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. And our adventure guide here is none other than the author, our dear friend, Dr. Ina Park. She's an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. She consults with the CDC's Division of STD Prevention, and she's the medical director of the California Prevention Training Center. So Ina Park, welcome to the podcast, and you are one busy individual, so thanks for taking time to chat and help us navigate these choppy sexual health waters. Thank you, Fred. I'm so excited to be here. So I mentioned we're going to have two episodes, and in this first part, we'll focus on sexually transmitted infections or STIs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should ask really the basic question, why did you decide to write this book? You know what, Fred, at the time I decided to write this book, I'd been in the field for over a decade and I just saw that STIs were getting worse in terms of the epidemic and yet, um, and the stigma around them wasn't getting any better either. And so the reason why I decided to write the book at this time was that, you know, I actually, uh, was with my son who was in a car accident, was hit by a car and I was in the hospital with him. And I just had this thought where I was watching him talk to every doctor, nurse, and even the hospital chaplain asking them whether or not they'd ever had an STI. And I said, look at this kid. He's so comfortable talking about sex and STIs. And maybe I could do something that could get people a little bit more comfortable talking about the topic. So I said, you know what? I'm going to write a book and I'm going to do it before I get in a car accident or lightning strikes me or something like that. So um, I really wrote this book to try to destigmatize these infections and to do it with a little bit of humor and a little bit of sass to uh, make the journey a little bit more fun. So you do write at length about stigma and of course the impact of genital herpes, which uh, packs an emotional wallop that goes well beyond the medical implications. So let's focus on herpes for just a minute. And of course at ASHA, we've spent a lot of our time working with the Herpes Resource Center. So I just wanna ask you about some background. And my mind goes back to the infamous Time Magazine article from the early eighties that proclaimed uh, herpes as the new scarlet letter H mm-hmm. thing. And we're still dealing with the impact of that some 40 odd years later. Um, and of course we could really make this a broad STD, STI discussion, not just about herpes, but so, I mean, why aren't we doing better with this? Why aren't we all as comfortable as your son in talking about this kind of thing? You know what, Fred? I think it starts from the fact that as a society, you know, the way we've traditionally looked at STIs or STDs is that there's some sort of punishment for bad behavior, you know, or, uh, and, and if we want to go, you know, back to our religious roots in Christianity that, you know, this is the punishment for having sex out of wedlock. When we know it has nothing to do with that whatsoever, even people who have one partner can end up with an STI. So I think as well um, in our education and our upbringing in school, we have a very fear-based and sort of risk-based framework when we think about sex and sexual health. And we are all, you know, many of us are shown these sort of pictures of worst case scenarios. So no wonder people feel stigma about getting these infections. And so I think it's our job 
to really combat and unlearn some of the bad things that we've learned along the way. So what can we do, practically speaking, to reduce stigma since it's so pervasive? I mean, just what are some practical steps, maybe? You know what, Fred? I think what I have found to be effective, at least with patients, is to really normalize the fact that STIs are a very common consequence of being a sexually active person. And I and I say basically every single person is going to get some sort of STI at some point. Not everyone realizes that they have one. But I think, you know, that whole practice of letting people know they are not alone and and just making people expect that they're probably going to get one, I think can help in reducing the stigma around these infections. You know, that's an interesting point. Just about everybody will get an STI at some point, but most won't know it. So when I heard you say that, I think about HPV, the human papillomavirus. Mm-hmm. Yes. The number, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the, 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 the lifetime prevalence numbers I see in that are like 75, 80% or even yep. more of all actually people have at least one HPV infection, but the vast majority, you know, never know it. And a lot of times what, what we'll tell to people, what we'll say, say to people is, do you know what you are? If you have uh, an STD, you're normal. You're, exactly. You're, yeah, the difference between you and the rest of humanity is that you actually have a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. absolutely right. Yep. I just say it's the cost of doing business in the sexual marketplace. And that's, you know, we just need to be matter of fact about it and accept it. And I think that would really help reduce the stigma around this. Yeah. And, you know, this is a discussion not only about patients, but it's also about healthcare professionals, because a lot of times uh, clinicians aren't, aren't necessarily comfortable, right? Yep, I, I agree with that completely. I mean, you know, I'm a clinician and I had the same, you know, upbringing and uh, sort of negative images shown to me when during my sex education. And I had to work pretty hard to unlearn that and become a really sex positive person. And so I think it takes both of us as clinicians and patients to, to work to become more sex positive because it's not something that, you know, comes naturally based on the way that most of us are educated. Right. Uh, before we leave this, I really want to ask you sort of a self-serving question because people ask us about this a lot. It's about uh, sure. herpes vaccine status. I mean, mm-hmm. are we much closer to having a vaccine? And I mean, what, what, what does the research pipeline look like? You know, I wish I could say that we were in terms of, you know, having something that is such a home run, like the HPV vaccine. As mm. far as I know, we are we are not there yet because you know, Fred, like for approval of a vaccine, which, you know, we know all about because of the COVID-19 vaccine, right? We have to go through the different phases of of FDA approval. And that last phase before it comes out to the market is those phase three studies, which are those large clinical trials that were, of course, done very quickly with the COVID-19 vaccine. We, as far as I know, we don't have any vaccine candidates for herpes at that final stage you know, before it would actually come out to market. So that means that we're not going to be seeing a herpes vaccine in the next couple of years, at least. Okay. All right. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed. We'll yes. keep it. I know there, there has been, a, there have been a lot of people spend a lot of time working on vaccine research and that herpes is a tough nut. It really fact, is. Yeah. All right. So, well, back to the book. So uh, you write about contact tracing, a public health tool to map in, in this case, STIs as they're trans, transmitted in communities. And that really, to me, brings up a discussion about sexual networks and you know, why some communities have really high STI rates, even if the sexual practices are pretty similar to what you see in society at large. So let me just ask, what do we need to understand about sexual networks and their impact on STI rates at the community level? 
So I'm going to start with the individual level first, Fred, is that um, what we need to know about sexual networks is that, you know, when you're having sex with somebody, you're not just having sex with them, but in the case of a bacterial STI, like a chlamydia or gonorrhea, you're also having sex with all the people that they might've had sex with, you know, in the past couple of months. And so we are all interconnected by the sexual relationships that we have. And so, you know, when two people are actually together, they are having sex plus, you know, any bacteria that they're bringing from their prior experiences may also sort of combine in that moment. And when we have people having multiple concurrent sexual relationships, that is a way that STIs can spread really quickly within a sexual network. And one example of where this creates disparities is um, around, I'll just take, you know, African-American population, some African-American populations and gonorrhea rates, for example, which, you know, in the state of California have been, you know, as different as 15 times higher among African-Americans than among whites. And part of that is related to the fact that in some communities, due to mass incarceration and violence, there are many less men compared to women. And so for heterosexual folks, the sex ratios in the community are so distorted that there are literally not enough men to go around. And so the men that are there are having concurrent relationships with multiple women. And therefore, um, you know, the chance of someone getting an STI in that circumstance, even with the same number of partners and the same level of condom use is naturally gonna be higher. And then, you know, this contributes to stigma in a way um, because, you know, people, I think certain communities feel sort of labeled or, you know, sort of ashamed that the disease rates are sure. higher in their community than in other communities. But the truth is, is that these are forces that are, you know, larger than an individual or even a community. They are forces, societal forces that are not mm. necessarily in an individual's control. Yeah, and when I'm listening to you, I think about even beyond that, what about things like access to healthcare? I mean, we know that a big part of breaking the cycle is, is testing and treatment and that kind of thing. But if you have trouble accessing healthcare, that probably just exacerbates that, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and we know as well that in certain, in certain states um, during the Affordable Care Act, you know, there was not expansion of Medicaid. And so I think, you know, in some states, access to sexual health care became easier during that time. And in some states, it didn't change at all. So I think that would further um, exacerbate this problem. So let me segue from that to uh, speaking about accessing health care. Uh, even when we do access health care, I've heard a lot about antibiotic resistant gonorrhea, and that's mm -hmm. become a problem. Uh, well, how big a problem is that? Well, so this is a hard question for me to answer, Fred, because it has not become a huge issue in the sense that we have a super gonorrhea. And I don't mean super as in fantastic, by the way. I mean, a super gonorrhea that is untreatable and incurable. We have not gotten to that point yet, but we have had in other parts of the world, like in England a couple of years ago, a couple of cases of gonorrhea that did not respond to typical therapy where patients did have to be admitted to the hospital and given intravenous antibiotics. So that is not a place where we want to go, Fred. And yeah. I think even, even people who are not, you know, super versed in antibiotic resistance would think that's not a good idea. Um, and so we are down to one class of antibiotic left to treat gonorrhea. In December, just you know, a couple months ago, CDC issued new guidelines saying 
We used to use two antibiotics, um, ceftriaxone and another antibiotic called azithromycin. We can't do that anymore. We actually had to throw the azithromycin out because there is too much antibiotic resistance to that. So we're down to one antibiotic. And if that concerns people, I'm not trying to scare anyone, but I just want to be realistic of the fact that we have a couple of others that are being tested, but we don't have one that's immediately available as a backup, you know? So uh, I want people to understand that it's out there and that, you know, barriers such as internal condoms or external condoms, you know, we used to call the internal condom the female condom, but, um, you know, condoms and other barriers are really the best protection that we have, and they're very effective against gonorrhea. Let me ask you a little more about resistance. Does that happen because these organisms are mutating and evolving over time? Is it happening because we're over-prescribing antibiotics? Is it a little of both? What's, what's, going, what's going on? So the answer is yes, Fred, <laughs> to everything there that you, you just said. Yeah, the answer is yeah, you are right. Um, both of those things are happening. I'm just going to give you an example because people are going to remember this from you know our, our recent battles with COVID-19. You know, early in the epidemic or the pandemic, you know, Uh, President Trump came out and said, we should use hydroxychloroquine and we should use azithromycin. So if you can imagine azithromycin use in the the world greatly spiked because of that. And if you give azithromycin in a dose that's not quite high enough to kill any gonorrhea laying around, then that gonorrhea will actually develop the ability to survive you know, in the presence of azithromycin, and that is how we end up developing antibiotic resistance. So yes, the organism does mutate over time and develop antibiotic resistance. And if we overuse antibiotics, we can speed up that process. Mm, yeah, too much of a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. But Fred, I still just, I still want people to go out and have sex. That's the thing. You know, I know yeah. I, I don't want people to be scared off by this. I just want people to understand, you know, what's out there and go out and have sex and just be, you know, have an awareness of what they're getting into. Well, and, you know, thank you for mentioning that because, yeah, we definitely want to be sex positive. I can see through where my questions were leading us to, to, well, tell me about this next bad thing. I know. <laughs> exactly. you know? And we don't re- really want to do that. Yeah, because, I mean, I mean, sex is what people are built to do and what they're meant to do. And it's healthy right. and it's good and it's natural. And my gosh, there you go. That's why we're all here. So right. absolutely. We just need to think about it and maybe do it a little, a little safer way, a little, you know, just to, yeah, it, 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 what you said. Exactly. Right. And, well, and you know what, Fred? STIs have been with us forever. They're not going anywhere and we've been living with them for this long. So, you know, we just got to keep on figuring out, you know, they're going to change and we're going to have to change along with them. Right, exactly. And that includes your, uh, your, your, your faithful uh, uh, podcast host here. I need to keep it. <laughs> so, well, very good. Very good. Um, I know you don't get to cover like every STI, but I'm wondering if you could talk about a few you left out and maybe what the listeners should know about them. Sure. I mean, you know, as you know, Fred, there's about three dozen different bacteria and viruses that can be sexually transmitted. We don't think about all of them as STIs, but I wish I had more space. If I was able to write about every STI I wanted to, the book would have been a thousand pages and no one would have been able to read it. So, um, you know, things that sort of ended up on the cutting room floor would be things like mycoplasma genitalium. You know, it's only been Um, known since the 80s. It's probably been around longer than that, but it's a really tiny organism that, you know, we think is a 
less common than chlamydia, but a little bit more common than gonorrhea. And um, we are just, you know, developing our understanding of this bacteria. And it is also one that has developed a lot of antibiotic resistance. And so, you know, there's a lot of interest in the field with sort of studying this organism and figuring out what other treatments we can use, because that is another uh, bug for which we do not have that many uh, treatments available. Um, and then the other would be, you know, trichomonas vaginalis, mm. because yeah. it is, it's the most, you know, common non-viral STI. I mean, obviously herpes and, and HPV are more common, but it's incredibly common. And um, it also, there's some huge racial disparities there with women of color being more affected and also incarcerated women being highly affected by trichomonas. So, um, you know, I think it is sort of a neglected STI, but it can lead to, you know, different birth outcomes in terms of preterm labor. It can also increase risk of HIV. And so it's another one. We now have a, a really effective test for it because the way that we used to test for it you know, picked up infections about half the time. And so now we have a test that's, you know, over 90% sensitive in terms of picking up these infections. Mm. So it's something that it's good to talk to your clinician about in terms of, you know, especially if you're having any kind of vaginal discharge to say, hey, you know, are you going to test for trichomonas? Because that test does exist. And, you know, I, will, I think if you actually test for it, you'll find it a lot more than you were expecting to. So let me ask you about this. You, you mentioned uh, uh, a trick in a vaginal discharge. I know yep. with a lot of STIs, symptoms, there may not be symptoms or they may be mild yep. or confused with other things. What, how does it work, the trick? Is it, are most women symptomatic? Um, uh, how does that work? You know, most women are not, Fred. I mean, certainly when someone comes in and they say, you know, things are not right down there, I have discharge or I have odor, that would be a great thing to test for along with bacterial vaginosis or BV. But a lot of people are walking around with an asymptomatic infection. Um, and so far, I don't know what the, you know, ultimately what the CDC guidelines will say. Yeah. We do know that they do recommend testing for trichomonas for HIV positive women, but we don't yet have that recommendation for uh, folks who are HIV negative. And I just don't know, you know, I don't have a crystal ball to know exactly what the recommendations are yeah. going to say. But I, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that if a woman is having symptoms, it's, you know, an important thing to test for because you are going to find it a lot of times. Yeah. And that may, gets back to maybe this whole idea of if people are like, well, what the heck do I do with all this? Uh, you know, that's why it's so important just to have conversations with your healthcare provider, you know, about your sexual history, about what's going on, you know, which tests you think are right for me, what do you, you know, that kind of back and forth. Um, um, it's hard to do. Hard I know. Do. And, you know, and Fred, can, if I could just give a, some sure. unsolicited advice to people, I would say Wait. I get, I get lots of messages from folks and I've talked to folks as well on social media about my provider made me feel bad about the fact mm -hmm. that I'm, you know, I'm having sex with multiple partners, for example, or they refuse to test me or whatever. And I would say that if you're having a difficult time with your provider or your provider makes you feel ashamed or, um, or you feel sort of more stigmatized after seeing them, then I would say that there are sex positive providers out there. And I would say switch providers. <laughs> well said, well said. So uh, where can people find you online and buy the book? 
So um, they could come to my website, um, inapark.net. So it's just my name, I-N-A-P-A-R-K.net. Um, and then of course it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's available at IndieBound if, to support your local independent bookstore. And I'm on Twitter um, at inaparkmd. And um, yeah, I would love to be in touch with folks who are listening to this uh, podcast. That's great. All right. So I think that's a natural conclusion of part one of our discussion with Dr. Ina Park, author of the new book, Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. Thank you for taking time to talk with us. And I can't wait to do part two, where we'll get into some other things like the mystery of the disappearing pubic hair. So thank you again. Thank you, Fred. Can't wait. Yeah. So check our podcast page for part two. We're recording this episode you're listening to now in early February 2021, and we'll have the next installment online, hopefully a little later this month. So until then, this is Fredo with Asha. So long. 